Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. As we begin this evening, a Sunday evening series on the pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy. We're going to begin in 2 Timothy. We're going to begin with a passage in 2 Timothy, a verse that I believe really governs the entirety of the pastoral epistles, their purpose, uh, not only as Paul wrote them to Timothy and to Titus, but uh, subsequently throughout the history of the church, the reason that they're called pastoral epistles is that they are directed primarily to the pastoral ministry of the local church, but I think that the, the, the governing principle of pastoral ministry in the church is found here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul writes, And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you in your word knowing that this is indeed the word of the living God. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, we might gain understanding, that he might illumine your word to our minds, to our hearts, that we might not only gain understanding, but wisdom, the knowledge of the application of your word to our lives and to our gathering, to our church. So we pray, Father, that this time in your word would be profitable for us and it would be pleasing in your sight. For we offer up this sacrifice of praise and of humble obedience in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In 1534, the English Parliament passed an act of succession on behalf of their king, Henry VIII. Uh, there's a king that many of us are familiar with, and usually not for good reasons. Henry VIII had a problem uh, with wives um, in search of an heir, particularly a son. Uh, he had uh, produced two daughters, Mary and Elizabeth. Um, the Act of Succession in 1534 established the primacy of Elizabeth over her older sister Mary. Later, Jane Seymour would give to Henry a boy, Edward, and another act of succession would be passed, placing Edward above Elizabeth, above Mary. Uh, didn't quite work out that way. Uh, when Henry died, Mary became queen. And when Mary died, then, or Edward, and then Mary, and then finally Elizabeth, who later would arrange for James VI of Scotland to be her heir. And so we have this history in, in, the, in the English court of these acts of succession, of laws passed and decrees written that determine who would succeed the king or the queen upon their demise. We have a very similar law in our own country. For very long, the office of the vice president was not really well defined. If you looked at the Constitution as it was originally written, um, they really weren't sure what the man was supposed to do. The first vice president, John Adams, uh, John Adams considered it the, the most ridiculous office ever contrived by the mind of man. It was believed that the vice president, should the president die in office, 
that the vice president was simply a placeholder until a new election could be held. As it turns out, the first vice president who uh, did succeed, I think it was John Tyler, um, decided that he was going to remain and he's going to stick around. And so, de facto, he established the vice president as the successor of the president, but this really wasn't established by law until the 20th Amendment in 1933. And even then, how things would work should the vice president, as well as the president, die at the same time, or somehow be incapacitated from the office, we didn't really know what would happen until 1947, as the Cold War is beginning to develop, as the Soviet Union has, has tested its own atomic bomb, and as the, the whole world after World War II is, is plunged under the specter of two ideologies battling for supremacy, the Presidential Succession Act was passed. A lot of folks don't know that after the vice president if the president and the vice president were to be removed from office at the same time, most Americans do not know who our president would be. His name is Paul Ryan. He is the Speaker of the House. He would be followed by the president pro tem of the Senate, who would be followed by the Secretary of State, who would be followed by the Secretary of Defense and then of Treasury, and on down to Housing and Urban Development and uh, the Department of Labor, in other words, this law has established an act of succession in the case of the leader of our country should catastrophe ensue and multiple men and women be removed or incapacitated at the same time. The Roman Catholic Church also has its own doctrine of succession. It teaches that the Roman bishop, the Bishop of Rome, whom we know as the Pope, is the spiritual successor of Peter. And that the college of cardinals that are around him are the spiritual successors of the other apostles. In other words, we see in these different examples the necessity of some concept of succession. Now, we could ask the question that many scholars ask of the New Testament if Jesus was coming back imminently, which many modern scholars believe that the disciples did believe, that Jesus was coming back imminently, very soon, within their generation, then what need was there about the next generation? What concern should we have about passing a torch if in fact there would be no torch to pass? Paul is often considered as one, in fact, the leading one who believed that Jesus' return was imminent. And yet he writes here to, Peter, to um, Timothy, his son in the faith, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will then be able to teach others as well. This one commentator writes, is the true apostolic succession. The kernel lies here in the maintenance from age to age of the same grand fundamental principles of faith and practice. This has been the apostolic succession of the Protestant church 
since the Reformation. Not some spiritual descent from one of the apostles, but rather the faithful passing from generation to generation of these things which Timothy had heard from Paul. Timothy would then teach those faithful men around him as he pastored, many believe, the church in Ephesus. And those faithful men would then teach others after them. Another commentator says that this is the first theological school within the church. But has the church shown itself to be concerned about succession? And by church, I mean not the the broad church at large, but rather individual congregations. When we look at the reality of history, it is not terribly encouraging. The big names in church history did indeed have their followers, their lieutenants. For example, Martin Luther was succeeded by Philip Melanchthon, John Calvin by Theodore Beza, Charles Spurgeon, interestingly, was succeeded but one by his son Thomas, who pastored the Metropolitan Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for many years. But typically, however, succession from one generation to another means upheaval and division within a church. Normally, what happens is whoever is brought in is not the same as the pastor that the congregation was familiar with. And of course, one of the problems that that engenders this division and this, this upheaval is that most churches have but one pastor. They do not have a plurality of pastors, they have one. And so for however long that pastor is in the pulpit, he establishes a a, a doctrinal position and a practical atmosphere of Christianity that the congregation grows accustomed to. And when he is no longer there, which is inevitable, when he is no longer there, Whoever comes behind him will introduce change. And change is not something that we like, even as believers. Don't change anything ever. And so typically you find that after one pastor leaves the scene, there will be upheaval, there will be division, there will often be schism within the church. And I can't imagine that this is what Jesus intended or what Paul envisioned when he writes these words to Timothy. Back in 1992, we as a congregation were without a pastor and without elders. Now, the congregation gathered together and and did two things. The first thing it did was to nominate men to be elders of Fellowship Bible Church The second thing was to form a pastor search committee. That is typically what a church will do, forming a pastoral search committee. Whenever they find that they will be or are without a pastor. Now as we enter into the pastoral epistles, as I mentioned this morning, I do consider this one of the most important topics that I have preached on in the 25 years that I have been an elder at Fellowship Bible Church. 
And the reason that I believe that this is so important is because of what Paul says to Timothy here and, and the critical nature of giving consideration for the next generation. Now, we at Fellowship Bible Church have the, the, uh, the unusual miracle that our elders are not aging. I don't know if you've noticed that. Don't I look 32? <laughs> no, we don't have any miracle. We don't have any sun standing still in the sky. We have the same passing of time as the rest of humanity, which means that with each passing year, the leadership of every congregation is getting older. And by the, 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 the ordained plan of God who has set each one of our days before there was yet one of them, we will pass from the scene. And it has been the concern of the elders of Fellowship Bible Church that we maintain not only as doctrinally pure a church as we can, by our own wisdom given by God, do, but also a practically correct church. In other words, that we, that we preach and do according to Scripture. But do we have any assurance that this will come, that this will be the, the guiding principle of those who come behind? Well, history would tell us no. We have no assurance. But I was, I don't know why, I was astounded by the providence of God in the topic of David's sermon this morning that uh, taught us that God's providence does not uh, allow us for one moment to sit upon our hands. That while God has ordained what shall come to pass, yet he has also ordained what we shall do in obedience to his word. And as David, King David was preparing to take back his kingdom through military endeavor, we must prepare to maintain the preaching and the practice of the gospel at Fellowship Bible Church, it will not happen by chance. It will not happen by uh, a reliance, an empty and unfounded reliance upon God's sovereignty. In 1992, five men were selected by the congregation to be elders. And one of the things that occurred at that time was a retreat to Bonclarkin up in North Carolina to study what the scripture had to say concerning the pastoral ministry. And coming back from that retreat, a pastoral study paper was presented to the congregation in which several of the principles that have guided this congregation for the last 25 years were drawn out, I believe, from the scriptures. One of which was that the, the function and purpose of elders in a biblical sense is to pastor the flock of God. But where do those pastors come from? Well, Paul, we, we hear from Acts chapter 20, Paul instructing the elders at Ephesus, whom he did not believe that he would see again because he was heading off to Jerusalem but in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul says to them, Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It has astounded me for many, many years 
how Paul makes use of two prepositions. And in using these two prepositions, I believe, establishes what he would have to be the pattern of succession within the church. He says that the overseers, now that word in the Greek is episkopos, from which we get the word bishop. So uh, there's no danger really of us becoming Episcopalians, but we can say from other passages that the elder is to oversee the flock as a shepherd. And in that sense, he is a bishop, he is an episkopos. He looks over the flock and after their care. But Paul says that the Holy Spirit has chosen these men from among the flock. Not from without, but from among. And I think that undergirds what Paul is saying to Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. That from among the people, from among the congregation, would come the pastors of the congregation. In the opening passage of uh, the opening chapter of Paul's letter to Titus, the apostle writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. Now, Titus did not travel with an entourage of men that he would deposit in these cities as their elders, as their pastors, but rather as an apostolic legate, as someone who was sent by an apostle. He had the authority within the congregations to nominate and to set in place elders who would pastor the flock when Titus moved on to the next village, to the next city. And these men, I believe, would fall under the same admonition that Paul here writes to Timothy. These men would take the faithful doctrine that they heard from Paul and from Paul through Titus, and they would entrust that doctrine to faithful men who would then teach others after them an apostolic succession would be established within each and every congregation without the need of bishops and of popes. There's always the question whenever we read something in the scriptures of this nature, the question of whether or not this is simply how they did it, in other words, whether it was just historical, or whether we are to continue doing it in the same way. And I would say that while this may indeed simply be historical, I cannot think of a better way of doing it. And that's often been my response when, when I've encountered people who, who look at the, 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 the structure of an elder-led church and their response has been, well, well, that's just one way of doing it. Well, yeah, it's the way Paul established, who was guided by the Holy Spirit, and frankly, I haven't seen a way done differently better. The way the church is, is handled today is very much like a corporation that has a chief executive officer or a chief financial officer who serves that company either until he retires or he's fired. And then there is a search for a replacement, almost never from within the corporation, but rather from another corporation. And that's the way the church handles things today. We don't handle succession 
because we really don't like to think about it. We don't like to think about our own demise, and so that's why most people don't have wills. We haven't made preparation for our own departure. Why would we think as we gather together in a church, we would do the same? We don't want to think about our pastors no longer being there. In fact, some of us may think, sadly, that if this and such pastor is no longer there, then neither am I. Well, that's the spirit of division that Paul condemns in the Corinthian church. We are all here as servants of the Lord and on His good pleasure. And we will all pass from the scene. But what will become of the church when we are gone? Transition is not inevitable. Healthy, smooth, biblical transition is not something that we can rely on. Again, referring to David's sermon from this morning, it is the will of God that His church be nurtured, that it be shepherded, that it be taught. That is His will. But we cannot rely on His providence alone without doing anything and concerning ourselves with what He has commanded us to do. We cannot rely on that providence as some inevitable guarantee, oh, it'll be okay. When our pastors are gone, we will have godly men who are devoted to God's Word, and they will continue to feed the flock as we have been accustomed to. One author says, The transmission of Christian truth must never be left to chance and is clearly not committed fortuitously, in other words, by happenstance, to every Christian, but only to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. But this doesn't just happen. Even in churches where the Word is honored and taught faithfully to all of the believers seated there, this transmission of the mantle of teaching authority is not inevitable. And unless conscious attention is paid to this passage in 2 Timothy, then each and every congregation is essentially doomed to division and to upheaval when the current shepherds are taken away. In the early church, many of those shepherds were taken away by violence. As the Roman Empire sought to, to squash this, this new sect, as soon as it determined that it was not merely another flavor of Judaism, it tried to destroy it. And as was the Roman practice with its conquered nations, so also with the Christian church, the Roman emperors and the Roman governors targeted the heads. They targeted the bishops. But every head they cut off was succeeded immediately by someone else. They couldn't make out what was going on here. What was going on was 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. These men, some of whom had sat at the feet of the Apostle John, who in the second century were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, were not lone rangers. They were not the modern equivalent of the senior pastor, but rather they were shepherds who had received the transmission of faithful teaching and had, during their ministry, passed it along to faithful men who upon their demise rose up to shepherd the church. 
Will that happen at Fellowship Bible Church? I'm not predicting persecution. I'm not predicting that our government will somehow, someday, come down upon us and take out David and Mark and myself and execute us as Christians. Frankly, I don't really think that's in the offing. But I do know that each of us will die. Each of us will pass from the scene. And it concerns us what will come afterward. How many churches? We were, we were in, in Scotland last week. There are a lot of churches in Scotland. They're now civic centers, condominiums, office complexes, art exhibits, museums. But what they aren't is Christian churches. Most evangelicals in the UK now worship in some other building that they rent because it is too expensive to buy one of these edifices that used to be called churches. Succession hasn't happened. With each passing generation, doctrine has been diluted and diminished. Practice has become more and more like the world. So that within several generations, there's nothing left. We read of the same regarding the nation of Israel, who the generation that, that survived the wilderness were obedient and listened to the words of Moses, as the next generation did to the words of Joshua. But then we're told a generation arose that knew not Joshua. A generation that leads to the book of Judges, where every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, I'm not saying that Joshua wasn't concerned about succession, nor am I saying, and I think I need to be very careful here, I'm not saying that our concern, our conscious effort to abide by this passage in 2 Timothy will guarantee a pure transition of the gospel from generation to generation. That would be to write God's providence before we experience it, and we can't do that. What I am saying is that if we do not give attention to this passage, we are guaranteeing the demise of our congregation. And the same is true of every other church. Over the years, a lack of attention within the congregation to this passage, I believe, has led to seminaries and, as I mentioned earlier, to pastor search committees. Now, my opinion is that a seminary is a necessary evil, and a pastor search committee just an evil. Seminaries are with us. Uh, I have benefited greatly from seminary, but I believe that what seminaries teach should be taught in the church. That what seminaries do in the raising up of men for the ministry should be done in the church. In obedience to 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, I believe that God has given every congregation the ability to pass along the faith of the gospel faithfully to men who will then teach others after them. What is the future of Fellowship Bible Church? Well, as I said, we're beginning a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy. 
What I hope to do in this series is to use the other pastorals, 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 and 2 Peter, as commentary on what we read in 1 Timothy, with additional input from Paul's epistles, representing those things that Timothy had heard from the apostle. Now, this could be treated as as just um, another Bible study. You know, another time to be in God's Word, another time to, to look at what God has said to us, and certainly there's, there is great benefit in doing that. His Word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And so there, there's no harm in approaching this as nothing more than a study of God's Word. But I think there's, there's more to it than that, I hope. And that is an emphasis on the pastoral ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, both present and future. Now, I I happen to believe that the under-shepherds of the Great Shepherd are already in the congregations of Jesus Christ. I'm not, as you know, an advocate of the American corporate model nor am I an Episcopalian, nor am I one who believes that the the pastors of a congregation should be determined by the denominational headquarters and sent to those congregations. But rather, as Paul says to the elders of Ephesus, the Holy Spirit has chosen you from among the flock to oversee the flock. Now, if that's true... And if, as Peter tells us, God has given us all things for life and godliness, then that, I think, means that the successors to the current elders may, and hopefully are, already in our congregation. And if not already in, then by our earnest prayer, I think, will be well before it's time for them to step up to the plate. I think it is also incumbent upon the congregation to recognize these men. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Now, I may be inferring here, I may be making implications that are not solid, but I think they are. But if we take as a given that the believer hears the voice of the great shepherd, does it not follow that they will also hear the voice of the under-shepherds, who should not be saying anything other than what the great shepherd says? And so I, I have believed for many years, for many decades, that it is not a matter for the leadership of a church to appoint its own succession but rather for the congregation to hear and to see in others, recognizing in other men within the congregation that calling and that giftedness that will make that man and those men shepherds from among the flock. Now that means that if by God's grace the succession of the current pastoral staff the elders of Fellowship Bible Church, are either already in our midst or will be, then it is incumbent upon the congregation to be looking for them. The duty of 
the leadership of the church is not to find these men, but to train them. They will become apparent. Paul says, faithful men. And how is faithfulness determined? Well, faithfulness is determined by a man's steadfast adherence to his duty, by a man's steadfast commitment to his faith, to his family, and to his flock. These are not things that can be done in private, and so they will be recognized. You may even be thinking of some young men already within our congregation who would qualify, at least as far as we can tell, as faithful men. And so I am looking at this entire series as a challenge to the congregation to be looking for those men who will fill the pulpit faithfully when those who are currently in the pulpit are no longer able or are no longer here. But also as a challenge to the elders of Fellowship Bible Church to take these faithful men and self-consciously entrust to them the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might be prepared to preach faithfully the word of God and to shepherd the flock among whom God will make them overseers. And so it is my prayer and hopefully our prayer that God would make known within Fellowship Bible Church His faithful men, that He would make this known to them as well as to us. And also that we would pray that God would be faithful through the elders to pass along the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we acknowledge that the church belongs to you. It is the bride of Christ. It is that which he purchased with his blood. Paul says the blood of God. And that we are but under shepherds who are responsible to the chief shepherd for that which we teach and that which we do. And Father, we know that while your heart burns for the church and that you will present her to yourself spotless and without blemish through Jesus Christ, yet we also know that we must be diligent to pass along faithful teaching to faithful men who will then be able to teach others after them. And so we pray, Father, that you would do this work in us and in our congregation and that you would do it also in other congregations where Jesus Christ is exalted in sincerity, spirit, and truth, and your word is honored and obeyed. We pray, Father, that you might build up your church from generation to generation, that you might reverse the decline that we have seen in Western evangelicalism over the past decades. Indeed, Father, that this might even be a cause for true spiritual revival. We ask that you would do this, Father, not for our own glory, but rather for yours, and for the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, please stand this evening for the benediction from 1 Timothy chapter 1, really, a doxology. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.